Take your Bibles, if you have them. If not, use the TV screens. Uh, to John 7. We're going to continue our journey through the Gospel of John. Chapter 7, we're going to start with the 25th verse, going all the way through 36, nine verses. And in our reading tonight, we're going to see something. We're going to see Jewish leaders, their hesitancy to take Jesus' life. And because they hesitated to take Jesus' life, which they were talking about, that sparked the crowd to ask questions, which revealed how confused they were about Jesus about his origin, where he was from, about his messiahship, that he really is the Christ, and the confusion about his warnings. Nothing is different today, really, if you think about it. People still hate Jesus. People are still confused about Jesus. But it's essential that Christians are not confused about Jesus. So we can proclaim, present and proclaim, a biblical messiah to a lost and dying world. Let's read our text, John 7, verse 25 through 36. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him? Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I am from. But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of his disciples believed in him. Many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the, the crowd mur, 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 muttering excuse me, these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your great word. No matter what section of the Bible we're in, your word has something to say to us. It's relevant, it's as relevant today as it was back then. So give us understanding, speak to our hearts, and help us, God, to do what you ask us to do in Christ's name. On Veterans Day, a Boulder, Colorado man parked his car in a metered area, noting his sign saying, Sundays and holidays accepted. He didn't put in a coin, but his car was ticketed. And he went to the city hall to ask why. It was closed for the holiday except for the police department where an officer told him Veterans Day wasn't a holiday as far as parking was concerned. So the man said he paid the fine, but the officer refused his money. You can't pay the fine today. It's a holiday. It's confusing, right? Here's another one. A jumbled, confusing directive was recently issued by the British Admiralty. It read... 
It is necessary for technical reasons that these warheads be stored bottom side up, that is, with the top at the bottom and the bottom at the top, that there should be no doubt which is the bottom and which is the top. Each warhead has been labeled with the word top. It really doesn't take much to confuse us. I mean, it really doesn't. If the signs for parking on a holiday are not simple and clear and are confusing, guess what? We get a ticket. And if the directives on storing missiles, warheads, are not clear and are confusing, we can blow ourselves up and blow up a warehouse. And if I may say so, if we are confused about Jesus Christ, who he is, where he came from, and his warnings, they will not have temporary, temporary, but eternal consequences. Let's briefly review so we may understand the context. You know I've been preaching through John. And we're up to chapter 7. Where Jesus is making his final journey to Jerusalem. It's months before he's going to die by way of the cross. And prior to the events of chapter 7, he told his disciples for the first time, he's going to die. So Jesus is walking in Jerusalem now in the shadow of the cross. This is his final journey to Jerusalem. The final period of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, why would Jesus go to Jerusalem if he knows he's going to be hated, he's going to be persecuted, and then he's going to be killed? It's funny, when we watch movies made about Christ and we get to the part where Jesus is handed over by the Jews and the Romans... Uh, to be crucified, our emotions kick in and we get mad at the Jews and the, and the Romans, right? You know, come on, we've all been there. But Christ purposely went into Jerusalem knowing he was going to be persecuted and killed for the sake of you and me, for the sake of redemption. This was his father's purpose and plan. And Jesus always, always submitted to his father's will. In the beginning of chapter 7, which by the way was the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, if you remember... We read Jesus' brothers wanted him to go to the feast to openly declare himself to be the Messiah. Of course, Jesus was right on his father's timetable, a divine timetable and not man's. So he declined. Even his own brothers at that point did not believe in him. You see, Jesus was alone. I mean, he really walked the earth alone when when it came to him suffering and dying on the cross. However, after his brothers went, Jesus went, but secretly, which was now the middle of the feast. You have the beginning of the feast, the middle of the feast, and the, and the last and greatest day of the feast. And when he entered Jerusalem, he went right into the temple and began to teach. And his teaching caused great debate. It caused great confusion and divided conviction. And there were five debates that erupted in chapter 7. And we already looked at Three of those debates. We looked at the debate about his character. Some said he was a good man. Some said he was a deceiver. We looked at the debate about his doctrine, his teaching. They said in verse 15, how is this man, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? You see, their doctrine was from a long tradition. Jesus' doctrine was directly from heaven. And the last time I spoke on John, we looked at the debate about his works. The Jews found it acceptable, hypocritically acceptable, to circumcise a man on the Sabbath, but we're ready to kill Jesus for making a man whole on the Sabbath back in verse 5. You see, their judgment of Jesus was by mere appearances, not by truth. 
Well, tonight we're going to look at the last two debates in chapter 7. The first is his origin, and the last is his warning. And in in these last debates, we're going to see three things. We're going to see a lot of confusion. Confusion about his origin, where he's come from. We're going to see confusion about his messiah. Uh, messiahship, that he is genuinely the Christ. And we're going to see confusion about his warnings, the warnings he gave the people. And I have to ask you, as we begin this, are you and I willing, regardless of debate that's going to, it's going to cause and confusion about Christ, are we willing, still in the midst of that, willing to proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world? Jesus was the only one who was not confused and boldly proclaimed to the Jews that he knew the Father and the Father and knew the Father sent him to the earth to redeem men. So let's be encouraged tonight to proclaim God's word that Jesus was sent by the Father who was, is, and always will be the Messiah to redeem men from their sins and to warn those who refuse to believe. Let's talk about the confusion about his origin. That's the first point. Is the Jews were confused about his origin. And if we're going to proclaim. Jesus Christ. That he's the Messiah. We ourselves must be convinced that he was sent from God. There should be no debate. No confusion for the Christian about where Christ is from. And who sent him. And trust me when I tell you this. There is a lot of confusion. I'm not talking about in the world. I'm talking about right within the church. There's a lot about there's a lot of confusion about Jesus Christ and who he is. The person and work of Jesus Christ. And I could tell you stories, but I don't have time right now, but we'll get into this text. The Jews, like many today, are perplexed about Christ and where he is from. Listen to verse 25 through 29 again. So let me take a sip of water. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me? And you know where I come from. But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him for I come from him. And he sent me. A couple things we're going to see here tonight. A lot of confusion. A lot. And a lot of sarcasm. We're going to see sarcasm and irony by Jesus. By John the writer of this gospel. And by um, the Pharisees, the Jews, the religious leaders. Now, there's one thing the Jerusalem, Jerusalemites were not confused about, and that was their leaders' murderous intent towards Jesus. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? The crowds at the feast were mixed with pilgrims and Galileans, but also Jews who lived there. Those were the Jerusalemites. And they were well aware of their leader's attempt to kill Jesus. They knew it. While some in the crowd doubted that anyone was trying to kill Jesus, if you go back to verse 19 and 20, the Jews who lived there, they knew better that they were trying to kill Jesus. However, they were perplexed at why the leaders of Israel were silent when Jesus was speaking openly. 
And here the leaders want to kill Jesus because they're envious of him, right? And John 1, 10 and 11 says he came to the, into the world and his own did not receive him. And now Jesus is in their midst, boldly teaching them, and they say nothing. Why they said nothing is really not exactly clear. Maybe the leaders were intimidated by Jesus authoritative proclamation of the gospel or maybe they remembered how Jesus was angry when the Jews made a mockery of the temple and Jesus made a whip and drove them out and overturned the tables maybe they were intimidated by that or because they knew if they seized him when the crowd was still favorable toward him it would cause a riot or maybe as verse 26 says can it be that the authorities authorities really know that this is the Christ was it possible that the leaders received more information about Jesus and now decided he's truly the, the Messiah, at least privately. It's a possibility. But the Greek construction of this phrase indicates that this question really expected a negative answer. Like, not really. And I think as you and I read through the Gospels, there is never any clue of Israel's leaders believing in Jesus, at least most of them. Most of them rejected Christ. Most of Israel rejected Christ. That's why the gospel went to the Gentiles. But that thought that Jesus is a Christ was quickly rejected by most of the crowd, according to verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Did they really know where he came from? Did they really, really understand where Jesus came from? A a twofold misunderstanding showed they really did not know where Jesus was from. They not only missed his earthly origin, which, by the way, was not as important as missing his heavenly origin. First, they determined, well, he's a Galilean carpenter from Nazareth. Verse 27, we know where this man is from. And if you read other parts of the gospel, they looked at Jesus and they said, well, he's, he's a Nazarene. He's a Galilean from Nazareth. He's a carpenter. And yes, he was from Nazareth. And yes, he was raised in Nazareth. But that wasn't his birthplace. He was raised in Nazareth, but his origin was Bethlehem. And if they looked at just a little bit at the Old Testament, they would have seen that he was born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth for me, One who is to be ruler, that's Jesus, in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So they were confused about what town he was born in. Another popular belief was the Messiah, the Christ, would be unknown until his public appearing. Verse 27, the second half of it, they said, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. In other words, in many of the Jewish minds, the Messiah would suddenly appear To redeem Israel. Jesus did not take the time. Notice that Jesus did not take the time. To argue that this view contradicted the Old Testament. Nor did he argue that although he was raised in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. Now what did Jesus do? Like he always does. He goes right to the heart of the matter. To their hard hearted unbelief. Listen to verse 28 and 29 again. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. That means he cried or he yelled. He wanted them to hear what he was saying. 
And he wanted them to know just exactly what he was about to say. He said, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now it's best to take Jesus' words, you know me, and you know where I come from, as irony. Jesus And most of the commentators agree with this. And I think all the commentators that I've read agree with this. Jesus was being sarcastic. Especially when he says in John 8 verse 19, speaking to the same crowd, he said, you neither know me nor my father. Now Jesus would never contradict himself. And one could hardly think that Jesus would affirm those who thought he was a deceiver. So in effect, he was saying this. So you know me, and you know where I'm from, do you? He was using sarcasm. They knew nothing about Jesus. Did you ever talk to someone about Jesus and get this response? Oh yeah, I know all about Jesus. I went to parochial school. I went to Sunday school. Or they might say, yeah, I pray every day. They know nothing about Jesus. All they know is how to pronounce his name. And usually that's accompanied with cursing. The religious leaders knew nothing about Jesus, and he tells them in the second half of verse 28, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. No matter, no matter where they thought he was from, no matter who they thought he was, God is the one who sent Jesus, regardless of what they might think of Jesus' origin. There should be no confusing confusion about where Jesus is from. See, Jesus made a lot of claims. But if you don't believe the claim that he came from God, that he is from heaven, that he was sent from the Father, and all the other claims really don't matter. And if you don't believe Jesus, and this is important, if you don't believe Jesus, you don't believe God. Verse 28 again. Well, I read that already. Let's go. So, when he said that to the Jews, it was a stinging indictment against the Jews who prided themselves on the knowledge of scriptures. See, they studied the Old Testament their whole lives, but were willfully, willfully ignorant of the God they professed. You don't honor the Son, you don't know God. Uh, John 5.23, whoever does not honor the Son... Does not honor the Father who sent them. Doesn't matter how much you know. You can know the scriptures from one end to the other. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't honor honor the, the Son, you don't honor God. I know someone who claims he has read the Bible 60 times. I believe, I don't think this guy is telling the lie. But every time I talk to this guy, there's a lot of confusion. And I'm thinking to myself, how could you read the Bible that much time and not understand the basic tenets of, the, of our faith, the basic doctrines of the Bible? Dr. John Piper says it like this. Over and over in this gospel, Jesus makes plain that if you reject him as God's son, his Messiah, and as supreme treasure of your life, you don't know God or honor God or love God or have God as your father, no matter what your religion and no matter what you say your relationship with God is. And Dr. John MacArthur states, people say, well, what about the heathens all around the world? And he's quoting now Peter, the apostle. Peter said, neither is there salvation in any other name than the name of Jesus Christ. 
You don't know Him, you don't know God. But people worship God. No, they don't. They don't know who they're worshiping. You don't know Christ, you don't know God. So the leaders and many in the crowd were very confused about Jesus' origin. Simply put, Jesus' origin was from heaven. And Peter knew that. The apostle Peter knew that. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? His disciples answered Jesus said, uh, his, his disciples answered Jesus what the people thought um, that the pe- what the people were saying. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. However, as confused as Peter was in, in a lot of areas, he was not confused about Jesus and, and where he was from. He said, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." and Jesus, of course, could not be the Christ, the Son of the living God, unless His origin was from where? From God, from heaven. A noted brain surgeon, Dr. Bronson Ray, was taking a stroll when he saw a boy on a scooter, smashed headfirst into a tree. Realizing that the boy was seriously injured, the doctor told a bystander to call an ambulance. As he proceeded to administer first aid, a boy not much older than the injured one nudged through the crowd that had gathered and said to Dr. Ray, I better take over now, sir. I'm a Boy Scout and I know first aid. Great confidence. I wish I had that kind of confidence. But listen, can you and I say with confidence tonight, Jesus, we know in our hearts where you're from. We know you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Can you say that with confidence tonight? You see, you need to say that with confidence tonight because if you're going to try to reach a lost and dying world, you can't reach a lost and dying world unless you have that kind of confidence. The next thing they were deeply confused about was his messiahship. They were confused about his origin, where he was from. Then they were confused about his messiahship. Verse 30, 32. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many... Of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So the second point, confusion about his messiahship should probably be titled, the division on his messiahship. And are we able to say with confidence, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah? Although most at that time was still confused about Jesus being the true Messiah sent by God, many did put their faith in Christ. But there was divided conviction about Jesus. You see, when the revelation of God comes and confronts human beings, division takes place. Some will be deeply convicted and will repent and trust in Christ, and some will continue on the road to destruction. And that's what the Word of God does. It divides. Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, the 10th chapter... He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. That's what the Word of God does. That's what the Word of God does. And this seems to be exactly what's happening here. But not all were unbelieving. Some of them were putting their faith in Christ. They said in verse 31, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? 
many of them were familiar with the Old Testament prophecy, which foretold of the Messiah performing, you know, miracles. And they were around when Jesus turned the water into wine, when he healed the paralytic, when he fed the 5,000. That was enough for them. You know, they, they understood that this has to be the Messiah. However, there were those who were infuriated. I mean, the Jewish leaders were infuriated because of Jesus' statement. But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. If someone today said, I came from God, he sent me, I'm the Messiah. As Christians, we would think, that is blasphemy. Because we know Jesus had already made his first appearance. And we also know Jesus said many will come in his name. Well, this is what's going on. What got them so angry because Jesus claimed to be sent by God. In their minds, that was blasphemy. And blasphemy in Israel was worthy of death. They didn't want Jesus to be the topic of conversation amongst the people. Let alone revered as the Messiah. So they tried to arrest him, but failed because why? His hour had not yet come. And I love this. No one could touch him because his time to be arrested and crucified was at the precise time. And until that exact time, no one was able to do anything to him. And by the way, Christian, no one is able to do anything to you until God says, it's time. Saying, it's time. So we don't have to fear a lot of things. Although we do, we're human, but we don't have to fear because when God says, now's the time, then somebody could hurt you and kill you or whatever. You know, you, you, for the sake of Christ, of course. But um, the awesome sovereignty of God is in view here. He determined when Christ would be arrested, not the Jews, not the Romans, not anyone but God himself. And I could go on and on with the stock ship because it is so rich. Anyway, they couldn't touch Jesus because his time had not yet come. Christ teaching his gospel always brings people to a decision. Always. Either you're for him or you're against him. There's never a middle ground, folks. There's never. When somebody says, well, I haven't decided yet, they decided. Jesus said, either you're for me or you're against me. And it always brings people to a decision. Is Jesus the Christ or is he not the Christ? We see this a lot in John's Gospel. By the way, if you don't know, if you never read John's Gospel, and I hope most of you did, that's what his Gospel basically is about. Proving Christ's divinity. That he is God. You know, his Gospel is a little different than all the other Gospels. He really honed in on Jesus Christ being the Messiah, being the Christ, being God. And that by believing in him and believing in his name, you could have eternal life. Anyway, we also see the different reactions of the people. Some called him a deceiver. Some called him a prophet or a madman. Some called him the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. We must make up our minds about who Jesus is, realizing that whatever we decide will have eternal consequences. Long before... Woodrow Wilson became president of the United States. He was a noted scholar teacher. He once declared nobody could defeat Alexander Alexander Hamilton, whether he was in office or not. He alone had the constructive program, and they either had to submit to chaos 
or to follow Hamilton. In a far more graphic and final sense, persons must choose between chaos and Christ. We must not be confused about his messiahship, otherwise it'll be chaos. So, we see they were very confused about his origin, where he was from. We see he was very confused about his messiahship. And then the third thing, and the final point, is they were deeply confused about his warning. Verse 33 to 36, Jesus said, then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to the, him to who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Do we, as Christians, or even as someone who's not a Christian, do we take the warnings of Christ serious, seriously? This last section is so tragic in a couple of ways. First thing is Jesus is going to be leaving them. Second thing is many of the Jews will be shut out of heaven Amen. forever. It will only be a few short months when the Son of Man will be celebrating his last Passover with his disciples. And he will be handed over to the chief priests and Pharisees and then to the Romans. And they will put him on a cross, march him up to Calvary's hill, nail him to a cross where he will die. He will be taken down from the cross, placed in a new tomb for three days and will rise again. He will spend 40 days more on earth and then ascend back to the Father who sent him. And he warned the Jews this. He said, where I am, you cannot come. It will be too late. The door will be shut. I like what Dr. Gary Berg says from the NIV commentary. He says, Jesus is talking about where they cannot go, heaven. His departure will be a return to God. When this happens, there will be a divine reversal. Up to this point, Jesus has been at work in the world, searching for those who will believe. Once he departs, once God's revelation is withdrawn, they will do the searching, trying to find out what they have tragically missed. They were mocking his warning. And people do that today. People mock the warnings of Christ. Listen again to verse 35 and 36. Where does this man intend to go? that he, we will not find him. Does he intend to go to dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? And I believe again, once again, there's a lot of sarcasm, not only with the Jews, but also with the Gospel writer John. First, the Jews were asking mockingly, mockingly, if Jesus was going to the dispersion among the Greeks. Now the dispersion... That was a common Jewish expression to refer to all Jewish people who did not live in Palestine but scattered throughout the Roman Empire, even beyond the boundaries of, of, of the empire to the Babylonian um, Empire. That's what happened in the exile when they were free. The northern kingdom really never resettled in Israel. They were dispersed all over the, all over the world. But I think something else is in view over here. Is Jesus going to the other areas outside Palestine, not only to teach Greek-speaking Jews, but also Greeks, meaning Gentiles? More than likely, that's what they meant. That's what they meant. Now, here's where John's irony comes into play. 
It was because of their spiritual blindness in rejecting Jesus that the gospel would indeed go to the Gentiles. So, in their sarcasm, they were speaking prophetically about the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Now, but having said that, Jesus didn't mean any of that. He meant that after he was crucified, buried, rose again, stayed for another 40 days on earth, he would then ascend back to the Father. He was going where they could not go. Jesus also told his disciples that they would not be able to follow him to heaven immediately, but later they would. However, tragically, most of the Jews, especially the leaders, missed what Jesus was driving at completely. They were confused about his warning. Many today mock Christ's warnings. A few months after Christ saved me, it was around 1977, 1978, I was working on Wall Street. And during my break, I would go down to the corner and listen to a faithful, faithful street evangelist. This guy's name was Al. Never forget it. I was a brand new Christian. And this guy would be there almost every single day at noon preaching the gospel of Christ. This is a true story. Some people would walk past him. Some would stop. Some would listen. Some would mock. And I would watch this guy. This guy was steadfast. He never missed a beat. I mean, people were mocking him and he just preached the gospel. He was a very humble man. I, I, had, I met him once and... Just a very shy man, very, but not when he preached the gospel, he was very authoritative. And the mockers wouldn't listen to the warnings or the pleadings to repent and turn to Christ. And there was this one man who was Jewish. And this man would also be down there listening to Al preach almost every single day. However, this man was a mocker. I mean, he was a mocker. I mean a mocker. If you look up the word mocker in the dictionary, that was this guy. You'd see his picture right there. And one day, as Al was faithfully preaching the gospel again, this man was faithfully mocking Al again. And when I got there, the Jewish man, the mocker, was on the floor. He had had a heart attack or, or a, um, a stroke. And I don't know exactly why that happened. I'm not coming up here to say God judged him. and I don't know why, exactly why it happened, but I have an idea that you don't reject and on top of it, mock the gospel. I don't know exactly, once again, why it happened, but we don't reject and mock the gospel. The guy recovered. Went back down there again and started mocking again. And listen, I wasn't there the second time, but I heard he had another stroke or a heart attack at the same exact spot. This, of course, is not the norm when people reject the gospel, but it's a warning. And I believe that that incident could actually have been an act of mercy for that man because it was a further warning to that man. How do we as Christians neglect God's warnings to us? Simply put, we ignore his directives for us in Scripture. Sometimes we can all fall into that category. Like when he tells us that Brian gave that exhortation, he didn't know I was going to give this particular scripture. Like it says in Romans 12, 1-2, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And in light, in light of what God did for us through the death of His Son, we ought to give ourselves entirely to God. That's what He wants us to do. Does this mean that we'll be perfect at this? No. No. However, we strive for that. But if we have a cavalier attitude toward what God says, I think this beautiful exhortation in Romans 12 turns into a warning to the disobedient. In other words, God can exhort us with Scripture, but if we, you know, have a wrong attitude toward it, towards it, it could turn into a warning for us. Not that we lose our salvation, but discipline will come our way. Let's conclude. Many of the Jews were confused, were, they, they were just a confused bunch of know-it-alls, really. That's what it came down to. They had right in their midst God in human flesh, yet they didn't understand where Jesus was from, that he was from heaven. They were confused. They didn't understand he was the promised Messiah. They were confused. They didn't understand his warnings. They were confused. We see the same confusion today in the world and even in the church. But there's really, really no excuse for it. You have his claims and you need to decide. Is Jesus the Christ sent by the Father to warn us to flee God's eternal wrath by coming to him and drink the living water he alone gives that wells up to eternal life? Or maybe your thoughts about Christ are divided. You have his word. You have the Bible. Read it. Listen to it. Believe it. And that will clear up any confusion you have about Jesus Christ. But don't delay like many of the Jews did. And still many do today and will not be able to go where Jesus is going, which is heaven. And if you call yourself a Christian tonight, and confused about Christ, His origin, His messiahship, His warnings, how will you be able to convince a lost and dying world? Listen, we all have doubts. But doubt the doubts. Doubt the doubts. A few, way, a few ways you can clear up that confusion. I'll give you a few practical ways and then we'll close. Read the Word of God. Read the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God, Romans ten seventeen. Number two, ask those who teach in the church to help you understand doctrines like we looked at tonight through their knowledge of the Scriptures. There are people in the local body that are knowledgeable in the Scriptures and can lead you to an understanding of important doctrines. And it will clear up a lot of confusion. Go to Bible studies. We have men's group here. We have women's group here. We have adult Bible studies. They're for you. They're so you learn. They're so you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the fourth thing is pray and ask God to help you understand. If you're confused, be honest with God. Tell Him, I'm confused about this. I'm confused about Jesus Christ. I hear all, this, all these things, but I'm confused. Pray and ask God to help you understand. And read the scriptures. And if you apply these simple practical principles, you will not be confused much longer. By the way, if you're the one who is not confused, maybe you're a sound Christian, you understand the doctrines of the Bible and you're not confused, um, you still need to apply these principles. Why? Because we want to go deeper in our understanding about Christ. We never stop learning. I never want to stop learning. 
We want to just keep going deep into the rich, richness of Christ. Peter told the church to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are, yourself are not a God of confusion. You're a God of order. You don't want your people to be confused, especially your church, God. You don't want your church, your people to be confused about who Jesus is, but that he is truly the Messiah, that he was truly sent by you, and that he warns those who refuse to believe that of eternal consequences. So God, help us in our confusion. Help us to sit and read the truth of your word. Help us, God. Strengthen us. We want to do this, God. We want to clear up any confusion that's in our minds and hearts. You want us to walk in this world being confident of who Jesus is. Being confident when we proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. For if we're not confident, we can never help the world to be confident about who Jesus is. So God, help us in our confusion. Help clear it up as we read your precious word and understand what it says in Christ's name. Amen.